If you're trying to grow a business, especially in an industry with big and entrenched competitors, then it's easy to push to grow too fast and in the wrong ways. Our guest calls it the death funnel. He is an expert in the food and beverage industries, but there are also smart growth lessons for nearly any entrepreneur or challenger brand. It's James Richardson, author of Ramping Your Brand on the Manager Message Podcast. Welcome to the Manager Message Podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help professionals and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations, the ones that generate by far the most growth opportunities. That means improvements in revenue, customer engagement, employee engagement, and your brand and reputation. I do that through consulting, professional speaking, and advisory work. My programs include guidance for message leadership with groups of professionals, as well as messaging transformation across an organization. On this podcast, we discuss three foundational components for managing your message. First, the message itself. Those are the words, stories, and evidence you want your marketplace to know about. Second, your messengers the network of actual people who can help you share that message. And third, management habits that will shape your culture and turn those improvements into an everyday business advantage. My new book is now available from Career Press. It's titled The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Indie Books, the audio version on Audible, Apple, anywhere fine business books are sold. You can also find a sample on my website, jimcar.com. We bring all of this together for you because, well, simply put, it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. Today's guest is an expert on the realities of growing early stage brands, especially within the world of entrepreneurs of food and beverage companies. Dr. James Richardson is a strategy consultant for emerging food and beverage brands with an interesting background in consulting, market research, and social science. James earned a PhD in anthropology from the University of Wisconsin, and he has advised more than 75 food and beverage brands on their growth strategies. He's worked with many of the big names you know, such as Pepsi-Cola, McCormick, Campbell's, Whole Foods, Target, Walmart, Nestle, and Kroger. He's also worked with many early-stage food brands, such as Pito's, Mother Kombucha, Bobby Sue's Nuts, and recent Shark Tank winner Tada Foods, among others. James is the author of a brand new book, Ramping Your Brand, and he is also a podcaster. His podcast is titled Startup Confidential. Very interesting one for you to check out. James, with all of that, welcome to the Manager Message Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Jim. Pleasure to be here, even though I think we have too, too many PhDs for one podcast. (laughs) Well, we'll try to be the rare PhDs who have something practical to offer as well. It's interesting. I think it gives you a a nice perspective on both managers, leaders, and also consumers, especially in the food and beverage space. But you do have a very practical bent, James. Notice, as we talked about here in the intro, you've worked with the giant consumer goods companies. 
You've worked with early stage companies. You've advised some venture capital firms. And I think you can offer a lot of guidance to people in and out of the CPG or consumer packaged goods space when it comes to growing in a smart way. But let's get right to this pattern that you've seen that I mentioned. Companies that get to a certain point of trying to grow, and then sometimes they go into what you call the death funnel. What is the death funnel and how does it trap leaders and companies trying to grow? So when I use that overdramatic, overly dramatic phrase, I'm referring primarily to the journey that most consumer packaged good brands make to half a million dollars in gross sales and usually in brick and mortar. And I call it the death funnel because of my team and I at my prior company did a little data science in a very large AC Nielsen data set. And, and what we were looking for in that particular experiment was what were the sort of the revenue thresholds that early stage CPG brands, in this particular case, natural organic ones, what were the revenue thresholds they hit? And so we did it by looking at where the, the brand counts sort of fell off. And the first huge drop off is at about half a million bucks. And basically what, what we inferred is most aren't making it past there. Later, I was able to confirm this through other sources. And it's, it's the period of the journey where I, I like to call the turning on the engine of their business. And sometimes the car isn't tuned properly and they just don't make it. A lot of the time, what I've found in my work in the last several years with entrepreneurs directly is that the death and the death funnel is unfortunately self-inflicted most of the time. I mean, if you step back and think about it, the average food and beverage entrepreneur or even a personal care entrepreneur, if you go, even if you just read the trade press interviews with these folks, you'll see that the, their background is not business. You know, their background is being a passionate innovator, or maybe they just got really frustrated one day in the kitchen and decide they're going to solve the problem. Those are very two common origins. And so depending on their self-awareness, what I like to call how much do they know about what they don't know, they will race out into the market and start selling something and they haven't really done their homework. Do you find that that passion gets in the way of patience at certain points. Is there anything particular in magic about that half million dollar number? Is it some sort of a emotional a cognitive switch point for people or how does that tend to kick in? It does seem a little too cute, doesn't it? The number is sort of literally what came out of the quant analysis. But what I've learned recently in terms of what's beneath that is that a lot of these companies actually by about that point, especially in packaged goods, they're hitting a a cash flow crunch to fund the next level of growth. In other words, they've got to find the cash. If they're going to grow, they're going to double to like a million. They've now got to find a whole bunch more cash to hand to their co-manufacturer to produce those units, you know, three months ahead of sales, blah, blah, yada, 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 cash flow, boring. But it's not, I mean, it's really their life at that point. And so often they've been running a money losing business up until then which is not uncommon in CBG to be earning negative in the first five years, right? So if you're not making any money and all your gross profits are keeping everything, just the operation going, then you don't have the cash to actually fund your growth. And a lot of people with the background I just described, Jim, I mean, you can sort of think about it in your head. These don't sound like people who would naturally be gifted fundraisers, right? They might be, but generally it doesn't skew for that. 
So a lot of it is a cash crunch, I believe, where even if you're doing things right, you've got to be able to raise the money. And we're not talking about millions, but you've got to be able to raise $150,000, $200,000. That's an achievement. So that's probably, I would say, the biggest barrier to getting past there for a lot of folks. Now, there are some folks who have very high gross margin product lines, and they actually can bootstrap fairly well. And as I talk about in the first part of my book, they get a pass through this whole death funnel if they just have just an unbelievably well-timed innovation, because it'll fly off the shelf. (laughs) So most people aren't living that reality. And I think this gets to, when you're looking at the world of consumer packaged goods in particular, is that that fundamental difference in marketing strategies, and sometimes there's an overlap, as we can talk about, I'm sure, as well, push versus pull. So for those of you who study marketing, you work in that world, or just business generally, push is when you're basically shoving product into a distribution channel, into a retailer, and hoping and planning that availability, visibility will help drive growth. The giant companies, the Nestle's, the Coca-Cola's of the world are masters of that. They have giant distribution networks. They have great relationships and they have space in the major retailers. And so they have the resources to do that. Pull is the other side of it where you're you're really banking on that more and more in consumers will be trying and buying over time and that demand will pull more of the product through the channel. So could you explain, James, a little bit in just practical ways for our message manager listeners? How is it that the big guys, that the big mature companies work that push strategy and perhaps why that's not the way that entrepreneurs or challenger brands ought to be looking at this? Absolutely. So basically the classic product launch model in big publicly traded food and beverage companies, known as strategics to exit-oriented innovators and entrepreneurs, they will have a a year one launch plan, which gets that new line to 90% of total distribution in retail within some timeframe on the order of months. Now, if they're Frito-Lay, they'll do it in six weeks. So they push all the product out there Basically, so that they can guarantee that there is zero likelihood that an interested person, an interested consumer, won't have it available in their local primary food store. In fact, they'll probably have it available in all of their food stores. So they take all the risk out of the consumer, you know, being unable to find it. They push hard. And then once it's there, once they have got it there, and essentially the accounts are opened, they turn on the paid advertising. Now that could be very sophisticated, modern stuff. It could be old school. It could be something in the middle like cable TV targeted paid ads, but they turn on the advertising. So they pull after they push and the advertising is meant to sort of smack this consumer over the head psychologically and get them to be aware that this new beautiful thing is there. The problem with that model with entrepreneurs is that you, and I I gave a flavor of it before, are just unbelievably undercapitalized. You're actually losing money for the first couple of years. Certainly you're losing money the first year. Absolutely. So you only have so much you can, money you could even dedicate to pushing, right? And the farther you dedicate to pushing, which would mean getting really over eager with brokers and salespeople, just 
getting a whole bunch of retailers to take you on, even in a region, could lead to a situation where uh, you're spread out 300 mile radius from your base of operations in terms of retail stores, but nobody knows who you are, right? So they're not looking for you. They're not unlikely to notice you unless you've done something incredibly unique with your package. So the reason that the push then pull model Mass distribution than mass advertising works for big public food companies is not just because they have all these resources to pull that off, which they do. It's also because what are they pushing? They are pushing new products, new UPCs, what they call them in CBG, which actually have an old trademark on them, right? So it's either like Cheez-It had a huge line extension called Grooves about five, six years ago. It's actually gotten pretty big. And I think it's like nine figures. So, so when they launched Cheese It Grooves, they did exactly what I'm talking about. But Cheese It Grooves does have the word grooves. It's pretty big. But the most critical thing on that package is the word Cheese It, right? Because basically that does 95% of the trust building necessary to drive trial with somebody who wants a cheese cracker. That's exactly what an entrepreneur does not have. They don't have a decades old trademark with all these positive connotations. They have this word, whatever your thing is, and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's just an empty phrase. And that's the biggest disadvantage that people have as entrepreneurs, which makes the traditional model impossible. A brief break to let you know this episode of the Manager Message podcast is brought to you by my new book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. It's published by Career Press, and it is an audiobook form as well, brought to you by Brilliance Audio Publishing. You'll find a simple, practical sequence you can use to bring more power, scale, and consistency to the everyday growth conversations in your business, whether that's business to business, business to consumer, a little of both, even nonprofits and organizations. When your company or professional association meets this year, how many of those people are yearning for practical ways to grow without necessarily having to turn their business model upside down? Probably all of them or close to all of them. I offer programs ranging from keynote speeches to workshops to new manager programs and executive level messaging leadership groups, everything tailored to your group and your growth plans. You can learn more at jimcard.com. Included there, you'll find my contact information so that we could talk directly. My email is jim at jimcard.com and my direct number is 501-247-8257. But if you're driving right now or working out again, it's on the website. We can talk at your convenience. And now back to the episode. The other thing, James, that I recall and my experience, it goes a ways back more than a decade. And I was, I was CMO. It was not a new brand. It's a very old brand of bottled spring water. And yet we were trying to rejuvenate that a bit. And one of the things that a lot of both consumers and other business people might not realize is how much it costs. If you want to get your little challenger brand into Albertsons, into Publix, into some of the big grocers and big retailers, for the most part, you got to pay for your parking space and you have to also have to agree to a certain promotional schedule and things like that. You've, you have more opportunity, but you've 
greatly increase your cost. You've really pushed your chips into the table. And as you say, you can burn through that money really, really quickly. In our case with, with Mountain Valley spring water, we got a, I would say a break, but it was an opportunity for us with Whole Foods at the time who basically said, if you can bring us something that our shoppers would really be interested in and that aren't easily available elsewhere, like a single source spring water packaged in glass, then we'll bring you in. We'll bring you in you know, some of our stores and, and see how that goes. But it wasn't like we're bidding for shelf space against the very big players, the Nestle's of the world. So it, it is difficult. As you say, the track record of success in all of that, if you're going for a new brand name, is pretty low. So you, you really, I say in that case, that with that push model that you described, if you're not set up for success with brand and distribution power, you're probably... <laughs> Well, maybe you'll be a unicorn. Maybe you'll be like uh, DiGiorno, but uh, chances are probably not, huh? No. And I, I mean, I'll be honest, statistically speaking, the average brand isn't, it's not like they're sitting on $5 million of distribution potential that people are begging for them to take. They are fighting in the early years for distribution. I think what's what's happened is that more and more often, high potential innovations are being chased down by the retailer. In other words, retailers causing the problem. And I write extensively about this in my in white papers and, and even on LinkedIn. The worst actors, I shall not mention names, but the worst actors are certain unprofitable supermarket chains that look at naive founders as a massive source of fee revenue. Because if you just if you bring like a hundred in, you keep doing it every year and watch them fail, you actually make more money if they fail. Because you, you get the new crop. And that is a unfortunately it's addictive. What you're talking about actually gets even more dangerous once they get to seven figures, because now they're going to be taken more seriously. And that's when they really get the, they get the invitations that really can tempt them with financial disaster if they're non-strategic accounts or not thought through, or they haven't done the capital raise to support things like the manufacturer chargebacks and the loss of gross profits that happen on a national, you know, 2000 store chain rollout. I mean, it, like you said, it's a, those fees add up. So if you're the, the challenger, you're the scrappy challenger, the smaller player that wants to grow and succeed in this consumer packaged goods world, playing the game well, and you've studied this too, James, is that it seems smarter, more strategic, more likely to succeed by building the fan base through conversations, by building memorability and generating that pull. So you're not just trying to say, hey, we just get our stuff into more stores and you know maybe we'll, we'll hit it big before we run out of money. I agree with you a lot about the importance of memorability. And certainly in, in this podcast, we talk a lot about the power of your message of storytelling, of the right sorts of examples and all of that that, that can help make you memorable and, and generate some of that demand. I would also imagine certainly in the, in the food and beverage world, that you have the opportunity to not only have a great message, but also sampling. People can have the experience of trying your yogurt or jerky or energy drink or whatever the case might be. What is it that, let's talk about memorability in the world that you study and what is it between the message and the product itself and how those intertwine that can build memorability? What tends to work? So this is my favorite topic. So <laughs> brace yourself. <laughs> In fact, I just wrote a book on it. In CBG, let's talk about food, actually, just food specifically. 
you have the sensory experience, which is fundamental. And it often gets overlooked by marketers, actually by most of them, but not by the smart ones. And the problem is before that sensory experience happens, most people are going to see a package. And that includes at the sampling table. They're going to see symbolism first, even if it's at a demo or a marketing event. They're going to see symbolism before it gets in their mouth. The nice thing about some categories is they actually have a lot of real estate, like a box of crackers, right? So you can actually, you can have a massive logo. You can have big billboard, essentially, especially if you have multiple facings. So you've got package symbolism, you've got the sensory experience, and then you may have direct consumer communications of some kind. Now, there's so many ways to do that, as you know. Memorability, I my research over the years has suggested is created when it's maximized, when the product category is a relatively frequently purchased one, such that the time between the first encounter with the symbolism and or trying the product and the next purchase is on the order of like one to two weeks. So think soda, snacks, certain kinds of condiments that are consumed in high volumes in certain households, like ketchup, versus other categories that are you know, consumed at a much, much slower rate, like flour, baking flour. So in, those, in that universe, and that's the universe I do most of my work in, by the way, those higher, they call them higher velocity items. But when you have a short enough time period between that first experience of the symbolism and the sensory experience, you're more likely to generate memorability if the symbolism was able to make a very clean what I call attribute outcome symbolic argument. So that's fancy anthropologist talk (laughs) for there's some symbol, probably linguistic on the package that in your mind as the consumer in literally in milliseconds has communicated some end outcome to eating that thing. Now that whole story is not on the package because that would be a little too much, right? You don't need to put that whole story on the package. If you pick the right symbol, it will communicate that outcome. Now, in reality, it could be a couple symbols interrelated, but I just want to be... So let's see. My favorite example would be the recent unicorn Halo Top. Why did this ice cream brand become $200 million in like 18 months? That's a good question to ask. Part of it was that it had the symbol, low calorie, right there in the front of the panel once they redesigned it. And low calorie is kind of, and this doesn't need a lot of explanation, signals a key outcome in American eating. And that is, oh... Well, this will help me manage my weight. Now, it signals other things as well, but that's the key one, right? So you have this beautiful symbol that's very clear. It was basically the only thing on the front panel. So there was no clutter, symbolic clutter. And that's a thing I see with new entrepreneurs, especially in natural organic, is that the front panel is like Dr. Bronner's old soap packages, just cluttered with ideological symbols. And the consumer doesn't know which cult they're joining. There's so many to choose from. I can be a vegan. I can be a gluten-free lunatic. I mean, it just becomes insane. Halo Top also made that mistake in, in a different way. The first time around, they cleaned up the package, low calorie, weight management, boom. Five milliseconds, the average person who cares about any of that is going to see that. It was a well-designed package. And they're in. They're ready to try it. And then what they found out when they tried it is that eh, it doesn't taste that bad. I mean, it's not exactly like Hagen does, but it doesn't taste that bad. And guess what? I eat the whole pint of ice cream every time I take one out of the freezer anyways. And this one only has 280 calories, not 700. The sensory experience is good enough. The outcome was perceived as real. I'm in. Now I have a repeat purchaser. So that's my long-winded way of explaining what creates memorability. 
In other words, the symbolism on the package suggests an outcome which is then delivered upon, or at least the, consu- <laughs> at least the consumer perceives that it was delivered on, and that's where things get interesting. The doctor would say, well, they're just talking themselves into the outcome. And, you know, as a marketer, I don't care. Let's talk a little as well about the intersection, at least in some of these brands, between the message and the experience. And it goes to the package and the actual consumption experience of the product and things like the founding story. And whether there are promotional tie-ins, if they're not-for-profit tie-ins, we kind of like the story of the entrepreneur who began you know, making jerky in their in their home, right? And and gradually it kind of found its way to the market and, and to popularity. But how do you, I know this isn't going to be the case in all the time, but where do you see the intersection of the message, the founder, the the experience of how to align those and and at the same time it should not be that the story of the brand can't be the story of the founder or the founding. It really has to be about for those who are our customers. How do you see those where have been successes in terms of bringing all of those elements together? So this is where I may never find this episode published by you, but we'll see if I survive because <laughs> I have a very, very contrarian evidence-based opinion on this. And that is, I can count on one hand the number of consumers I've met who could recite the founder's story who were repeat consumers of anything. They don't care, Jim. Some of the biggest fans of Vitamin Water, Kind Bart, they don't know anything about Daniel Lobetsky. They don't care. And they may be buying it by the case. So I've known that for years and I've kept it to myself, usually in front of specific audiences, just so I didn't offend people with my the naked social scientist, the cranky social scientist in me. But, and I say that because I'm an expert in inductive research in which you, you really just early on in my career, you know, I spent years running around America for clients interviewing about food behavior. And I did it, I did it inductively by asking open-ended questions. And then I listened and then I analyzed those stories and the founder's story never came up. So the reality is that it's too removed from the eating experience and from that attribute outcome loop that I was talking to you about for it to make any difference on purchase behavior in a big way, with one exception. If you have a competitive situation where product A is basically offering the same attribute outcome signal and product B, so like, you know, think about two venture capital-backed early-stage brands fighting it out, and this is not unusual. Now, the one that has the cool founder story, the 10% social, you know, profit back to blank charity, social mission, that can be helpful in standing out essentially in that otherwise equivalent marketing situation. But what it's been proven to do is really essentially lengthen the process of repeat purchase. So, you know, extend it out another six to 12 months. Now they call that loyalty in marketing. I call it extended repeat (laughs) because, you know, there isn't a lot of lifetime brand loyalty in food. That's probably not a shocker to some people listening to this, but there really isn't. So, It has been proven in those kinds of competitive situations to help a little bit. But what it doesn't do, those stories don't drive trial and they don't drive repeat. And as you probably learned as CMO, repeat is really the lifeblood of a healthy CPG business. And you've got to stabilize it or else your brand doesn't really have a core. 
it's kind of this unstable, hard-boiled egg without the yolk. Absolutely. It's what we call here the messengers. So those are the people who who become your fans and help you build scale and help you build upon success in a way. I, I am curious, James, and um, I guess I'm not shocked by what you say in terms of the founding story and, it, and its relative people are indifferent to it at the consumer level, but we do hear a lot about, does it help maybe in attracting capital or at that level versus at the consumer level? You must be smart because your name is James. So that's what I was going to follow on with. What I've learned more recently in my career, working exclusively with founders is that, you know, who wants to hear the founder story? The investor. And you know why they want to hear the founder story? It's not so much that they personally want to find someone who shares some romantic ideal. Now, in the case of Daniel Lubetsky, probably yes, but he's very outspoken about that. They want to hear that passionate story because it's, it's a way for them to determine whether you have a motivation beyond profit that will cause you to continue through the next X years of hell they're about to fund. <laughs> That's why they want to hear that there's a story. What they don't want to hear, I mean, what will cause an investor to run for the hills, I think, at least in the world I'm in, is, yeah, well, my exit plan says that I'm you know, looking for a 6.7 to 7.3 multiple, and my accountant says that oh, I will get a net return. If that's the motivation, the only one they hear, they're gone. They don't care how good the product is. Because that's the kind of person, if that's their mentality, I can tell you right now that they are not going to go through the hell of scaling a business. Even if they made it to a million or 10 or 5 million, they don't know because it only gets harder. It's sort of like parenting. You thought that it got easier because the diapers were gone, but then you got a rude awakening. <laughs> I can tell you that from experience. You're exactly right there. That The problems just get, you think it's messy when they're young, that the problems just get bigger and the implications become wider as you go. And I'm curious, James, apart from CPG brands, and some of this may be maybe speaking outside of the companies that you work with the most. But it seems to me that there are some things that we can draw from that experience in terms of memorability, in terms of consistency in what we're communicating, in terms of the traps that people can get into, in terms of how they're going to try to grow and grow the appropriate way at the appropriate stages. So without leading the witness here too much, are there things that you have seen in your work with CPG challenger brands that you think are good guidelines for anyone who's trying to grow when you're going up against some entrenched competitors or those who might have a lot of existing market power? The one that I think costs nothing that every young entrepreneur can deploy today is consistency. And that's something that I often don't see. And maybe the causes are personal, they're operational, there's, you know, people are in a chaotic mood because they don't have enough staff. But when you can be extremely consistent in your messaging across all your touch points, and that in my world, that includes many different things, right? The package, your trade marketing, consumer outreach, but in your business, whatever it may be, just total consistency in how you're presenting your business. And a lot of that does come down to really consistent branding, something you can do from day one, but you've got to really believe in it. You'd be surprised how easy it is, even for me, doing B2B, to just slip up, right? And suddenly it's like I've got a tagline, a new tagline every day. 
<laughs> so, you know, and I, you know that as a mar- and it's even worse if you think you can write like me, and then you want to entertain yourself through your marketing. Oh my God, it's a disaster, right? So I have a joke that you'll appreciate, which is what I tell my clients. I'm like, you know how to find a good agency? When you're vetting them, ask them what makes them really different. And if the first thing out of their mouth is they're creative, move on. Because those are the agencies who became, they're running an independent agency because they want you to pay for their art experience. (laughs) I'm being brutally honest. As opposed to what marketing really is, which is 90% ruthless consistency and appropriate consumer interaction and 10% content. Just like architecture is 10% design and 90% construction management. <laughs> so, you know, that, that's the agency you want to hire. Just as a note on that, way back when, when I was a university professor and I would be teaching some classes when it would come to media management, advertising, promotion, and those sorts of things. And I remember at the time, M&Ms had not been advertised on a national scale for a while. Now, they've had a, a resurgence in recent years, but they really hadn't been a whole lot going on for quite a while. So the undergraduates and even the graduate students that I taught didn't have a whole lot of recent experience in hearing promotional messages around M&Ms. But it would never fail, James. We would talk about slogans and taglines and memorability. And I, I would say, okay, you know, show of hands or who can blurt out what is the when you say M&Ms and they would the vast majority would already melts in your mouth, not in your hands. And so is that message. And there are countless other examples. But as you say, the consistency is key. Not trying to change that every 18 months when you get new leadership in or get frustrated. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right, especially on that brand manager cycle. And that is something I see at big companies. I saw live in person and banged my head against the symbolic wall many times. Because, you know, someone comes in, they feel I have to do something, tagline something you could change, one of those things that's sort of lower risk. But yeah, I mean, the reality is that if it's working, you keep it consistent until you need to modernize and update. But that's certainly not every year, and it's not every month. But the problem with a small business is that, unlike Kraft or General Mills, you actually could change your tagline every day. You're almost too nimble. So the, 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 the trade-off of nimbleness is sometimes it empowers you to make inconsistent decisions, which when it comes to messaging who you are as a company, either to business stakeholders or to consumers, is a real disaster. So the other thing I was going to say that you can learn from the CBG entrepreneurs more generally, I think, is the, the idea of truly understanding from your early consumers, what are the high value in outcomes that they get from experiencing your product or service? And if there's one thing I learned as a social scientist, and one of my specializations was religious conversion. And one of the things I learned was that people who get attracted to a religious movement come in with one set of drivers, but what keeps them in the movement is often completely different. And they don't even notice that cognitive dissonance. I mean, the outside observer does. And sometimes there's overlap. But the reality is that what causes you to start your business That motivational set may have nothing to do with why consumers are buying you repeatedly or buying the service repeatedly. So don't assume you know that. Do your consumer research in the early years and figure out what are the high value outcomes that are causing people to become fans. And part of my work is to help founders and CBG get through that process and do that because without that information, it's hard to do really good planning. 
you know, if you're going to spend a lot of money, you need to know what is the, what I call the symbolic argument that's causing people to buy you repeatedly. And in my world, it's at a high price, right? My clients sell premium price products. The goal is not to sell at a Walmart price because <laughs> only big companies can do that. <laughs> they could make a profit at you know 10% because they're going to sell 100 million units. Well, that's not the world I'm in, right? So you want to have a really good argument for that high price, right? And I think that can be learned in almost any consumer-facing product or service. Could be tech, could be a piece of software. And it's amazing how little... I chuckle to myself, Jim, because I see these articles all the time about, oh, D2C is so, D2C is so amazing because we have this direct relationship with our consumer. It's just so, we know so much about them. And, I, and then I, you start to push, if you talk to those people, what have you learned? All they have is a bunch of purchase history data points. You know, they actually haven't gone out to their giant list and asked basic questions about the experience of using the products. And you have to have the humility as a founder to be willing to do that if you really want to learn potentially that high value outcome that might not be why you caused the business, but it's going to be the reason it scales. And, and I can tell you natural foods, this is a real problem because people often, I call them category geeks. They tend to be the people who invent the foods. They're like geeking out on something. You know, they, they want the ultimate veggie snack. And so they make kale crackers in their kitchen and blah, blah, blah. And then it goes from there. But they don't understand why, why a different audience might like it. They just assume and keep imposing that motivation onto everyone who buys their product. And they never learn. And those are the people that actually drive their business right into a little, I call it a tar pit of the weird. <laughs> so you have designed a beautiful product in my book. Beautiful product for a bunch of weird people like you, and there aren't many of you. Have fun with that. I mean, now, if if you're okay with a $1 million business that goes nowhere, maybe you are, that's okay. But most of the people that I work with want to, you know, they want to get to some kind of scale. So you have to avoid talking to yourself, especially when you're an innovator, because innovators tend to be geeks about their little zone. They tend to know, they, they almost like they know too much. Oh, they like PhDs. They know too much. Now that brings us to, you mentioned your book, you got a brand new book out called Ramping Your Brand that has a lot of these guidelines. You can tell us a little bit about that, James, what the book is about, what it encapsulates, where to find it and how we can keep up with what you're doing. Thank you for yeah letting me plug the book. The Ramping Your Brand is a four-part explanation of the best practices used by exponentially growing brands in food and beverage since the Great Recession. And it walks folks through what these brands did that is unique and not typical of big co-public launches, but also not typical of your average specialty food launch as well. And the goal is to help people get smart about how they think about growth and how they think about growing fast, but not fantasizing about what I would call unicorn growth, which statistically never really happens. So I did a bunch of case study research in the past. I've continued it and I'm assembling all that into a package to help founders who are ready to hit the gas. So it, it basically trains them how to think about, is this the time to really accelerate or not? And you know, for a lot of folks, it's too early. So hopefully they'll realize that when they read it. You want to be prepared. The book is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. I hope to get an audio version out later this year. 
We will have the links for all that in our show description and we'll update as needed if you add the audio book on there as well. James Richardson, this has been a really interesting conversation and you do have, whether they are contrarian or just illustrative or just neat, yeah, a lot of different uh, stories and perspectives I've certainly learned a lot in this conversation. So thank you so much for sharing what you've learned working with all of these CPG companies, large and small. And thank you for coming on the Manager Message podcast. And thank you, Jim, for inviting me. I really appreciate it. My thanks to Dr. James Richardson for joining us on this episode, and especially to you for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast. If you like what you're hearing and you find it valuable, then I invite you to subscribe. Just tap that subscribe button. That will ensure that you don't miss an episode and you can consume those at your will and at your convenience. And if you think that the content here might be valuable to other professionals like you, then I would ask, give us a rating, give us a review. Those five-star ratings do help other professionals to find the podcast in this crowded environment and for them to be able to get benefit from it as well. You'll find a lot of resources for you as a message manager on my website, jimcard.com. A lot of free resources um, that we do a weekly tips newsletter called the Message Manager Memo. Uh, you'll also find links to a sampler of my book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. And if you have an organization, a company, or a say a professional association or a management team, that is struggling with growth and messaging issues. Perhaps your message itself doesn't really differentiate you from the competition. It's not clear to the outside. Perhaps you're struggling with scale and growth because you don't have a lot of messengers on the inside and the outside of the business who can help you share that message. Or like many other organizations, you might be struggling with consistency. People say things in lots of different ways, and that tends to confuse the market, and it tends to undermine your trustworthiness. People don't know quite what to believe. Well, I have programs ranging from keynote speeches and workshops and new manager programs, executive level leadership programs. You'll find that as well on the website, jimcar.com slash speaking. And for any of these, if you like to talk about some ways might be able to help your organization, your members, then let's talk. On the website, you'll find my address, jim at jimcar.com, and my direct phone number is also on the website, and we can have a conversation directly at your convenience. We might see if there are ways we can help or some recommendations we might be able to make for you. Until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.